now it's working. <laughs> How about we pray before we start? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who speaks to us, that you reveal yourself to us through your word, that your word makes us wise for salvation and equips us so that we can do your work. So we pray right now that as we come to your word, we pray that you'll help us uh, to focus on it. I pray that you'll work through your spirit to convict us of your son, Jesus, so that we may live for you. We pray these things in his name. Amen. We all have uh, significant events that we remember for totally different reasons. Uh, let me give you some examples of what I mean. I remember my 17th birthday not because of a big cake, great food, or great presents. I got a lift to church that night uh, for music practice from someone in this church, and we ended up rear-ending someone else's car. So I remember my 17th not because of my birthday, but because I was involved in my first car accident. I remember an awards night, uh, not because I won anything, but because my friend tripped over while running on stage to get his award. I remember a boxing day test at the MCG, not because of the cricket, but because I went to the Barmy Army stand and I bought one of their shirts saying, you all live in a convict colony. <laughs> I remember the day I got baptized, uh, not because um, Daryl put me down for about five minutes, <laughs> but because that night I lost in Monopoly and I'm still dirty over it. <laughs> Two years ago, I went to a college mission in Cairns. It was a great trip. Uh, if I sat down for five minutes with you, I probably could tell you some really great stories of what happened. But I remember Cairns not for the church we went to or the things we did. But what I remember straight up is Meldrum's, this pie shop that we went to almost every day, the best pies in northern Queensland. We all can remember events that are significant or memorable for totally different reasons. And that's what kind of happens here in John 5. Uh, this healing miracle that we read of is obviously the significant standout event. But it's actually a weird miracle to me. You see, the man gets healed, but he seems so ungrateful about it. It's not your usual man gets healed, uh, follows Jesus, happy story. Actually, I think this passage isn't really about the healing, even though there's a lot of big truths for us to learn here. It's actually about something else totally different. You see, John uses this miracle, this sign, almost as a diving board to tell us something else about Jesus so that we can believe in him. When we read any passage in John, uh, we have to keep John's purpose of writing in mind. So, John 20, verses 30 to 31, is a great verse to remember reading John. And it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this passage, this miracle and incident is written so that we would believe in Jesus and have life. So let's begin by having a look at the context in verses 1 to 5. Verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. 
Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. This place is called Bethesda. It's in the northeast of Jerusalem. It's near what's called a Sheep Gate, a little hole in the city walls where sheep came in to be prepared uh, to be sacrificed in the temple. And there we find two pools. Each pool is about the size of a football field. And side by side they stand with covered colonnades all around the edges and one in between the two pools. And verse 3, if you have a look, tells us about the people who gathered at these pools. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. You see, this place wasn't a place that you wanted to hang out. Hundreds of unclean and unsanitary people filled these colonnades every day. This place would have smelt like a combination of BO, body fluid, and other bad smells. And any orthodox, clean, middle-class Jew would avoid this place at all costs. So why did all these people gather at this pool? Well, verse 4 and verse 7 give us a clue. Uh, for many of your Bibles, if you have a look, verse 4 won't be in the text, but it'll be in your footnotes. And because most of the reliable Greek manuscripts don't include this verse, it's probably uh, later, uh, added later to tell us something that everyone at the time knew about. So it was this common knowledge that was written in later. You see, there was this popular belief around, uh, this myth that this pool was able to heal when the waters moved. And only the person who went in first into these disturbed waters was believed to be healed. So all these people, they waded around these pools until the waters began to move. And then they'd play Red Rover to see who'd get in first. So that's the context. And as we get into the passage, I just want to draw out five observations today. The first is about the one particular man. In verse 5, it says he's been disabled for 38 years. He's a regular at this pool, so day after day, week after week, year after year, he's been dropped off beside the pool uh, to wait for these waters to move. Uh, he's disabled, uh, so he needs help to move. He can't do it by himself. But everyone else around him, they want to get into the pool first too. So no one's there that's going to help him. You see, he's never going to be first into the pool. And that's assuming that the pool actually does heal. Uh, also, the average life expectancy uh, back then was about 40 years. So for almost all his life, he's had this condition. So how do you think this man feels? Well, this is what comes to my mind. Hopeless, helpless. He can't do anything to heal himself, to save himself. You see, this man had no hope. Imagine putting yourself into this position. Maybe you've already had a snapshot of what this might feel like. I'm 27 years old, uh, and I hate even being sick for a week. Uh, for, for those of you who are around 38 years old or wish you were 38 years old, imagine your whole life 38 years of having no hope, no help, no one to heal you. How does that feel? See, this man was in a hopeless, helpless place. 
He can't save himself. He can't heal himself. And he needs the help of someone else. So in a physical sense, this man had no hope. And this reminds us of our spiritual condition apart from Jesus. What would your life be if you didn't hear about the saving message of the gospel? Well, there's no hope, no help, apart from the grace that we've been given through Jesus. You see, because of our sin, we have no hope from ourselves before God. Just like this man, we can't save ourselves. And with that background, uh, the second observation should give us hope. Because, you see, Jesus initiates. Uh, these pools in Jerusalem, they, they're not like the pools we find in South Bank. And these colonnades boardwalks are there either. It's an unclean, dirty place. But Jesus doesn't seem to care. Instead, he seems to purposely walk to this area. And he pushes his way through dozens and hundreds of lame blind people just to find this man. You might ask, why him? Why this man? Why not anyone else? Surely there was someone younger than him, with more promise than him, with an illness more critical than his, or deserve healing more than him. Why not anyone else? And my answer is grace, pure grace. Why are we here saved as God's people? Why did you hear about the saving message of Jesus? Did you or I deserve merit of being saved? The answer is no. It's all grace. So in verse 6, as we look, Jesus finds the man, and he initiates by, by asking a pretty odd question. Do you want to get well? Well, of course, that's a no-brainer question. And the man responds, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. You see, this guy had no hope. He's putting all of his energies into getting into this mystical pool, and he probably thinks here that Jesus is going to help carry him into the water. And unlike other miracles we read in John and in the other Gospels, there's no faith displayed from this person. You see, Jesus initiates the whole story. It's not because of the man's faith, not because of his potential, not because he deserved it or merited it. As you get a vibe of this guy later on, it's not because of his character either. And you know, I'm really glad that Jesus is the one who initiates. I'm really grateful that he reaches out to this kind of person that he shows compassion and mercy, that he takes the first step in our helplessness, that he's gone all the way to the cross to give us life, something that we don't deserve. Because deep down, I know how I measure up. You should know how you measure up too. I'm an okay guy. I like to think I'm almost perfect, but both you and I know that I'm not even close. I sin, I say stupid things, I do dumb things. I might have done a few good things, but I haven't done anything to deserve or merit being saved, to earn eternal life with the creator and ruler of the universe. So how do you measure up? You see, no one is good enough to earn salvation before God. 
That's why I'm really glad that Jesus is the one who initiates, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This man had no hope, and Jesus initiates. Jesus comes to him and meets him. And while we had no hope, Jesus makes a way for us to come to God. Maybe today you feel like there's no hope. Well, Jesus comes to you and says, come to me, cast your burdens on me, and I will give you hope and life. So Jesus initiates. And as we keep going, uh, we see that Jesus also heals with his word. You know, words can be powerful things. Uh, Last week, we had a week of preaching workshops and and lectures at college. And through the week, we saw words being used in different ways. Some lectures made us bored, confused. Some of them encouraged us. And the feedback we had in our workshops, because we all had to present sermons, some of them ruffled us up. Some of them taught others. Uh, Words are powerful. Uh, Brendan was in my group, and we both waved the Sunnybank flag. And luckily, both of us did surprisingly well. But while my words and your words might have power, only the words of Jesus can heal. Let's have a look at verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. So the third observation here is that Jesus heals with his word. It's pretty easy to take uh, this for granted, to almost become numb at the power of Jesus written in the Gospels. But this is one extraordinary miracle. This guy can't walk. He hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. And there's something about the power in Jesus' word and authority. It wasn't something in the water. It wasn't anything about this man. It was all the power of Jesus. He heals with his word. He commands the man to do something, something that he wouldn't have been able to, done bef- to, to be able to do before, to pick up his bed and walk. And in verse 8, it says he does it. And it shows the completeness of this whole miracle. He was fully healed instantaneously. He could walk and carry his own bed. You see, Jesus heals with his word. Sometimes we need a reminder about the power of Jesus. His words created the heavens and the earth. And most importantly, his word, the gospel, it heals us spiritually from our sin and saves us to eternal life. And he still works today. His words can heal, bless, save, and forgive even in today for his glory alone. So Jesus heals with his word. But as I said in the beginning, uh, this is one weird miracle. This man doesn't express any faith whatsoever. And if if you look in verse 15, uh, this man is very un-Australian, kind of like me going to the Barmiyami stand. Once he finds out it's Jesus that heals him, this man runs to the Jewish leaders and dobs on Jesus. So why did John include this miracle? What's Jesus trying to pull here? You see, answering this question will show us the main point of this whole incident. And we get a clue at the end of verse 9. 
this miracle took place on the Sabbath. So work of any form, it wasn't supposed to happen on the Sabbath. It's like heading to the office on Australia Day or Anzac Day. It's unpatriotic. Almost anything to do with working or laboring didn't happen on this day. And you see the Jews, they were very proud. They were too proud of the Sabbath. In fact, they expanded and added to the Old Testament laws about the Sabbath. Some of you know that Anglicans have their 39 articles of faith, but the Jews here have 39 articles of what not to do on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders, uh, they saw this man who'd been healed, and he's carrying his mat. Uh, You'd imagine any normal person to be glad that he's healed. But these leaders... They were annoyed that he was carrying a mat on the Sabbath. They didn't care at all about the miracle. All they saw was he was breaking Article 39 of 39 about what not to do. They were so annoyed that they even wanted to know who was encouraging this disobedience. And surely enough, in verse 15, the man dobs Jesus in. You see, this incident kicks off all the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, which ends up with Jesus on the cross. And Jesus seems to say the right things to stir people up at the right times. Verse 17, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, not Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Did God work on the Sabbath? This was a question that Jewish rabbis threw around before Jesus' time, and they were all in basic agreement about this. God works on the Sabbath. He cares for his creation. He keeps it all going, and he's at work in our world. So although Jesus gets in trouble about the Sabbath, what he says in verse 17 makes everything hit the fan. You see, Jesus claims a unique relationship with God here. He addresses God as my father, and he claims to work on the Sabbath because his father, God, does also. So Jesus puts himself out to be God the Son, equal with God. And that's what Jesus gets in trouble for. And that's what the rest of the chapter, if you have a look, expands on. Jesus has a unique relationship with God. He's God's son. I think that's why John selects this miracle and sign to record here. You see, the miracle isn't about the man. He's an ungrateful dobber. It's not really about Jesus' power to heal. It's not the main point. The miracle leads to this controversy And this is where Jesus reveals something about himself to them, something about God, Jesus' unique relationship with God. He's God the Son. If you think about it, if Jesus isn't God, then Jesus Jesus hasn't won for us eternal life. The whole good news and saving message of the gospel, the cross, it doesn't work if Jesus isn't God, if he's not sinless, perfect, if he can't conquer death. John wants us here to believe in Jesus to gain eternal life. And here John reveals that Jesus is God's son. 
equal with God, having a close, intimate relationship with the Father. That's why we can look to Jesus to reveal God to us. That's why we can trust that the cross actually works. It makes a difference for us. Friends, if Jesus isn't God, if you don't believe it, if you don't think it's important, then our faith is dead and we might as well go home. But if Jesus is God, we can trust in him and we can believe in him and we can be made right with him. So Jesus has a unique relationship with the Father. And finally, if we uh, move back a couple verses to finish off, uh, Jesus looks for a response from the healed man. If you go to verse 14, Later Jesus found him, the man, at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. I found the ordering of uh, how Jesus dealt with this person very insightful. And I think it mirrors the way that God dealt with his people, how God deals with us today. Remember, Jesus is the one who initiates here. He approaches and heals out of sheer mercy and grace. And now Jesus looks for response. He actually commands the guy, stop sinning. If you don't change the way you live, you'll face something worse than physical suffering. You'll, suffer, you'll face eternal judgment. This is also how God dealt with the Israelites. He initiates. He saves them from Egypt to be his people. It's all grace and mercy. And he looks for a response from the Israelites. Live as my people. You see, this is how Jesus works with us. He initiates. Jesus saves us through the work of the cross while we deserve nothing. And he looks for a response. He holds it out to all of us. Stop sinning, believe in me, and live for me. We're not told what this man does, whether he takes up Jesus' advice or not. It's not important right now. What's important is us today. Jesus has initiated to all of us by showing his grace and mercy and he wants us to live his way. This is how we work with God. So have you responded to him? Have you taken up his offer of new life? Maybe something needs to change in your head and your heart about Jesus so that you can respond to him today. Or for most of you, how are you responding to him now? You may have taken him up, uh, but you just need to realign your life to him. Maybe for you, you know all this, and it's more about your hands. It's something that you need to do and put in place in practicality. Do you need to stop sinning today and to live for Jesus? So we've had a look at this passage, and while this healing miracle is important, the passage has something else to say about Jesus. You see, the healing takes place on a Sabbath, which is a diving board to the man to the main point of the text. Jesus heals to show that he's God's son. And we've gone through these five observations. The man has no hope. Jesus initiates. He heals with his word. He's got a re unique relationship with God as his son. And Jesus looks for a response. Uh, this passage shows Jesus as compassionate, gracious, having the power to heal and save and that he's God's son. 
equal with God and close and intimate with the Father. And as we look at the man who was healed, I think there's a lot in common between this man and us. You see, we have no hope. We have no way to earn a relationship with God within ourselves. But Jesus initiates. It's all about grace, not merit, nothing to do with us. Jesus' word, God's word, gives us life. And he calls us to believe in him as God's son and as God. So let's trust in Jesus. Let's believe in Christ. Let's always live in the light of all God has done for us in Christ. That while we were still sinners, Jesus, God's Son, died for us. So let's finish today by praying to this end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace that while we were without hope, still sinners, you sent your Son, Jesus, to reveal yourself to us and to save us from sin and death. We acknowledge that Jesus is your beloved Son, that he is fully God, perfect and holy. Thank you for reminding us of our hopelessness and Christ's mercy and compassion. So we ask today that you help us to live in response to the grace you've shown us in Christ, to believe in you, to trust you, give us the conviction and strength to sin no more. Help us to live acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. He's God. He's our Savior and King. And we do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.